Okay, so Ezra chapter 8, we're actually getting close to the end of Ezra, and we got Ezra and Nehemiah in this sermon series, so we still got a ways to go. I think we'll uh, wrap this up sometime in uh, maybe the end of March or April or something. I, I don't know, but we'll get there when we get there. I, and, but we are close to the end of Ezra. There's only 10 chapters, and so next week we'll finish this one up and then move into Nehemiah. Um, here's, what we're gonna, here's what we've seen so far, in case you haven't been with us through all of this. Ezra is a book about a return journey from exile of 70 years of, of exile and punishment for the sins of Israel. They were brought into Babylon. Uh, they were defeated by the Babylonian king uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And for 70 years, uh, long after Nebuchadnezzar was dead and gone and new kings took their place, uh, his place, they, the people of Israel lived outside of their land, uh, outside of the promised land that they were given. At the end of that 70 years, God had promised to send them back. And that's what Ezra records, is this journey back to, to Israel. And so the first um, six chapters or so records the first wave of a return to the land with a guy named Zerubbabel and um, Jeshua leading the charge there. And they get the, the temple rebuilt over the course of quite a few years, about 60 years or so. Uh, they work to rebuild the temple. And then in chapter 7, we see Ezra taking the journey with a new wave, a second wave of, of returning exiles. So that's where we started last week was, was this overview of Ezra coming back uh, or joining the, the exiles back in the land of Judah. And that he went there for the purpose of, of teaching the law of God as a priest, in his role as a priest, to teach the role, uh, the word of God to the people that, that remained in Judah. And so chapter 8 gives us basically more details about that, <clears throat> that journey, the journey that he took with these people. Chapter 7 was basically the overview that, hey, he's going to go, he's gonna, here's what he's going to do when he gets there. But chapter 8 actually records the journey uh, for us a little bit more specifically. Um, but here, I think here's what we're going to see uh, through this. Uh, you and I and everyone else in the world, be, as people made in the image of God, um, have certain things embedded or hardwired into us, in our souls, that are meant to draw us and point us to, to our God, to the God who has created us, who has redeemed us through Christ. And every person, believer or not, is a person that, that has certain longings or needs or desires within their life. And I think the three things that we see fundamentally throughout all of human beings is uh, the need for at least three things. There may be more, but there's at least three. One is the need for significance or meaning or purpose in life. Uh, that we have, to, we have to find ourselves here for a reason. And, and so how we answer that question of what's our purpose, why are we here, that's fundamental to human flourishing and to just living a life of, of, uh, of humanity. We also need security and safety uh, in this world, right? We need to have a place to live and food to eat and some very fundamental things, uh, peace of mind and all those things are needed for, again, human flourishing. And then the, the third thing is we need acceptance or belonging. Uh, we need to know that we're loved, that we are 
uh, accepted by someone. And of course, the, all of these things can be distorted because of our sin. And we find all kinds of messed up ways to try to fill these needs in our lives as people uh, who don't find them in Jesus. But, but these three things are just, they're right here in this text. It's an amazing thing that we get to see as Ezra prepares to bring these, these returning exiles back to the land with him. We're, we're witnessing his kind of working through these three components of significance, of security, and of, of acceptance. And so while each of us um, feel that, I think on a, on a soul level, I think whether we articulate it that way or use those terms or not isn't really the point, but we, we all feel these things deep within us because we're in God's image and he's, he's made us this way. He's wired us as human beings this way. Uh, that's why human beings, apart from all the other creatures on the earth, actually think about why we exist. You don't, you don't see you know, a squirrel like just kind of pondering the meaning of life. It just, it's just not what they do. They, they're just going after the, the acorns. Uh, and so that we have a difference of, of reality in front of us. So um, where we go to find those things of significance and security and acceptance, where we go for that is what's crucial, right? And we can drive ourselves crazy looking for those things in all the wrong places when we're meant to find them in the Lord Jesus. And, and so uh, he is the only person who can get us to those three things truly. And that's what Ezra, I think, is going to take us to today. So uh, we, this, we're going to break this up into basically three sections, uh, and, and each of the three sections deal with, at least on some level, though not explicitly, like exactly as I'm framing this, but I think we're going to see the, the, the heart of these three things play out in this. So look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 8, and we'll read, actually, this is going to be probably one of the longest sections we read, down to verse 20. Uh, and it's going to be more, like we've seen uh, many times already, it's going to be more names, lots of names, and it's going to be terrible. So, uh, at least for me, having to read them all. But the, we're going to get to the, get through the names. So, these are the heads of the father's houses. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me, Ezra's now speaking in the first person here, from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Of the sons of Phineas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, not the same Daniel from the Bible, different guy. Daniel's been dead a long time by this point. Of the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Perosh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men. Of the sons of uh, Pehoth Moab, uh, Elihonai, if anybody's got a better pronunciation than that, I'd love to hear it. Uh, the sons of Zerariah, and with him 200 men. Of the sons of Zatuz, Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshua, uh, Jeshiah, the son of Ataliah, and with him 70 men. And the sons of Shepathiah, see, it just keeps getting harder as it goes. Like the, the first names were easy, and these are now even worse. Uh, Zebediah, the son of Michael, there's one I got, and with him 80 men. The sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of 
Jehiel, and with him 218 men. Of the sons of Bani, uh, Shelohamith, the son of Je- uh, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, and with him 160 men. Of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 men. Of the sons of Asgad, Jonathan, the son of, I don't think that's Jonathan, Johanan, the son of uh, Hakatan, and with him 110 men. Of the sons of Adoniakim, those who came later, their names being Eliapheth, Jeuel, and Shemaiah, and with, uh, with them 60 men. Of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, that's a good name, Bigvi. If you need a baby name, there's one. Uh, Uthai and uh, Zakur, and with them 70 men. Okay, I think I'm over the, the worst of it. Uh, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people of the, and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerab, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah. Okay, there's like three Elnathans in here and there's a Nathan. So that, it must have been a really popular baby name that year or something. Uh, Zechariah, Meshulam, leading men, and for Joriab and Elnathan who were men of insight. And I sent them to Idu, the leading man, uh, the leading man at the place, uh, Kashfia, um, telling them what to say to Idu and his brothers and the temple servants at the place, Kashfia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God, and, and by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion and the son's, of uh, Mahali and the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah and with him Jeshiah and the sons of Miriah and his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, these were all mentioned by name. Okay, whew, we got it. Man, you guys, I got to just start inviting people to do scripture readings up here for, for me. So. Um, so, so what's happening here? Let's, let's just try to unpack this. Because again, we just, we're rattling off so many names. Names, of course, that are in a different, from a different language, from the Hebrew. Like we don't have most of these names like in our list of names. Um, but what's happening here? Why does the, especially why does the Old Testament emphasize these lists and genealogies so frequently. Well, well, there is something that we need to recognize in this, that what's happening here is that the family lineage was vitally important to the culture of the Israelites. They, were, they took it very seriously where they came from, who their family was. And that makes sense in some, in some way because it is Abraham and all of his descendants that God promised to bring about the salvation of the world through. And so the idea of a family lineage is so crucial to the people in this, uh, in this day. What does that have to teach us? Well, I think in, in the Midwest here, we, we do un- understand a little bit of this. Many of us do. 
that I think if there was any idol that, that we would have as Midwesterners, there's probably many, but one of the big ones is family. That family is so huge for, for us in this part of the world. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, it's not, except that it can certainly get in the way of loving Jesus with our whole hearts. It's not, of course, family is a good thing. It is instituted by God from the beginning of creation. It's not bad. We, we need to value family. However, there can be an idolizing of these good things to an unhealthy degree. And so for the people in Israel, it was the same in, in many ways. It was if you couldn't trace your family lineage back to a respectable family member, you didn't have much standing in society. And so the people who were returning with Ezra uh, felt, felt the need and really just culturally there was a need for them to be able to trace back where their family line came from. It was a big deal for them. And what we're seeing in this is actually something even more subtle. It's, it's that they are finding their source of significance through the family tree. And you and I may do that, maybe, where you, know, you have a lot of pride in the family that you came from. Maybe you're from a respectable family or a successful family and you want people to know that. Some of us may not find our significance in family trees. Maybe we find it in other things like our educational level or our skills or our wealth or any other number of things. But I think what we're, what we're seeing in this is that the, the people of Israel find their significance largely in their family. And we need to make sure that we're not finding our significance in our family tree but finding it in Jesus Christ. Your, your family may, is a good gift from God and it may not be, like, look, all of us have messy families. Every person in the world is a sinner. Every family has its problems. You, you probably uh, recognize that in your own life. But your significance has nothing to do with your family of origin. It doesn't. Your significance in life doesn't have to do with your spouse or your children. It has nothing to do with who your parents were. It has everything to do with being united to Jesus Christ. It is only in Christ that your life will have any significance at all. And so when Paul talks about this with the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 1.26, he specifically says that God uh, chose them despite their lack of what he calls noble birth. He says that God didn't choose those because of their noble birth in this church or any church. And this is what he's getting at. That idea of noble birth is, is rooted in the idea that where you come from is what matters and that's what gives you significance. And Paul says, no, it's not. It has nothing to do with who, who you were born to, what your family of origin was, was like. What, ha- what matters is that God chose to save you from your sins through Christ. And that's where your significance is. And the, fa- the fact of the matter is the Bible, the New Testament in particular, uh, takes this idea of family that was so deeply rooted in the Old Testament and, and applies it through Jesus Christ in a glorious way 
to show us where we find our significance. Ephesians chapter 2, 18 through 22, Paul writes this, for, for through Jesus, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. We all, through Jesus, have access to the Father by the Spirit. That's what he says. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The, the New Testament application of this is it doesn't matter where your family is from. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter how dysfunctional your life was growing up. At the end of the day, through Jesus, you have access to a perfect father and, a, and you are members of a family that is bigger and better and eternal than, than just your earthly family. I think that is something we, we've got to recognize because our, so often our sources of significance, our feeling uh, of, of whether we're a significant person boils down to what was our family like? What kind of family did I grow up in? And that can be a devastating thing if you are from a family that isn't healthy and has its sins and its, and its issues and, and abuses and the things that we all know exist in this world. And many of us are, are, are living uh, out of those things. And so rather than finding our identity in those things, we have to pivot our hearts to the Lord Jesus. And this is what, well, I don't quote Rick Warren a whole lot around here, but I, I really like the, this quote from Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. I think it's been rebranded now as, uh, I don't know what it's called, Why on Earth Am I Here maybe is what it's called now. But um, there's one paragraph that I think is worth the price of the book, so I will give it to you so you don't have to buy the book. Um, <laughs> it's a good book, it's fine. But, here's, but this has always resonated with me. And he, he says this, you are not an accident. Your parents may not have planned you, but God did. He wanted you alive. He created you for a purpose. Focusing on yourself will never reveal your real purpose because you were made by God and for God. And until you understand that, your life will never make sense. Only in God do we discover our origin, our identity, our meaning, our significance, and our destiny. I think that's so helpful because we, we do, we live in a, in a time where there is just so much pain associated with our families and we can, we can actually define ourselves in a very unhealthy way based on the family that we were born into. And the point is that we, the Bible teaches us we're not to do that. We define our source of significance through the work of Christ, drawing us into a family that is eternal and has a perfect father. And that's, that's where we need to point our hearts to. All right, let's, but let's keep reading. Let's get back to Ezra 8 now. We've gotten through all the, the names and the family significance. Um, in, in chapter 15, uh, verse 15, I'm sorry, through verse 20, uh, all these people gather together at a river 
to kind of con- con- uh, just get ready for the journey. And Ezra is surveying who is there and he realizes there's no sons of Levi. There's no Levites who are vital to the work in the temple. That, that's what their role was, to work in the temple. And there's no Levites. So he sends the El Nathans and Nathan and some other people to go find the Levites. He's like, get, get some of these guys to show up. And so they do. And now uh, they're all together. And there's a few guys that join him from the tribe of Levi and they're getting ready to go. So look at verse 21. It says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. This is what's happening. We just read the text. It's pretty simple. There was a fast and and a season of prayer called by Ezra, He proclaimed a fast uh, to seek from the Lord something specific. And what is it? To seek from him, verse 21 says, a safe journey for ourselves, for our children, and for our goods. Ezra recognizes what's in front of them as they travel. They're in Babylonia. They're traveling about four months worth of travel because they're on horseback or camels or something. They don't have cars. They don't have planes. Uh, they're, they're traveling for four months to get from where they are in what is modern day today, Iraq. We would call it Iraq. And now they're working their way to Jerusalem. Four months. And that's, that's not a short amount of time. And, and the journey is dangerous. There's, this, was, this was a time before electricity. This was a time before like police officers patrolling the highways. This was before there was really any semblance of security as you, as you travel. This was very dangerous because there's going to be bandits out there trying to rob them. There's, there's going to be marauders. There's going to be groups of people who are looking to harm them to take advantage of the situation. And so there's actually what's happening here is uh, a, a real sense of anxiety and fear for the journey right? And that's what's happening. Ezra's afraid about the travel. And so what does he do? Does he just shrivel up and say, okay, we can't go because it's dangerous? No, no, he doesn't say that. He proclaims a fast. So a fast is when you cease from eating food for a short period of time in order to re, re, refocus yourself on the, on the Lord and what he's called you to and to humble yourself in that way. That that we might humble ourselves, he says, to seek from the Lord a safe journey. And what's interesting here is that Ezra does not take advantage of a resource that he actually could ask for. Verse 22 tells us that he was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect them. He refuses to ask King Artaxerxes for help, which is interesting. 
And the reason why he's ashamed to ask for that is because he made such a big deal about God protecting them. He said, no, God's going to do this for us. The hand of our God is for good on those who seek him. The power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. And so he's basically going, well, I've, I've already put all my chips into this, into the center of the table and go, God's got us here. I don't need the king's help. So he's not going to go back on that. So what does he do? He has to actually ask God for help. He's, he's stopping. He's humbling himself. He's fasting. He's praying. He's not asking the king for help. And, and he's actually doing the opposite. He's asking God for help, the one who can truly help, which is the definition of humility. If we want to know what humility is, it's, it's saying, I can't do this. I need you, God, to do this. And so what's happening here is that there is a, there's a real true danger in front of them. And there is a, there's a fear of that, and legitimately. And, and what this is pointing us to is the second thing that all human beings need in life, and that is security or safety. And, and this is just playing out, in this case, this is playing out in the form of we're traveling to a, a, a another place over a long journey. We have a lot of people and things with us, and, and this is going to be really dangerous. And so there is a sense of anxiety here, I think, in, in Ezra's case. But what does he do with that? That's the key, right? What does he do with his fear? He brings it to the Lord. He draw, draws himself to, to Jesus, ultimately, you know, the, the, at least as far as he understood it. And, and this is something that we, we need to recognize, that the Bible teaches us that we are anxious people. Like, everyone has anxiety. Now, certain degrees and differences, right? Different demeanors respond to it differently. But there's a reason why Jesus says, do not be anxious. It's because we are anxious, right? Like, it's not just for one person. It's everybody. Everybody deals with fear. Everybody deals with a sense of, I'm not going to be okay here. We're seeing that here. And, and so we, we have to recognize the need in those moments of fear that we have to take a page out of Ezra's book here and humble ourselves before the Lord and ask for his help. Humbling ourselves is a, is a deliberate act of the will. It's a decision we make. I think we sometimes think of the word humility and we go, well, you just either have it or you don't. But what the Bible presents is actually a different picture of humility. It doesn't say be humble very often, maybe once, maybe twice, but most of the time it says, humble yourself. There's a decision that we make to be humbled. Jesus gets at this in Luke 14. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. What we're seeing in this passage is that humility which is being displayed in, in Ezra's case through fasting and prayer, that's the expression of humility that they're using, that humility is actually the way into safety. It is by humbling ourselves that we find ourselves secure. To enter into the true life that we long for, we must be humble before the Lord. So how do we do that? 
Well, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us actually how to do this. He says in verse 5 through 7, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So again, there's this idea of you're actually humbling yourself. You're clothing yourself with humility. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves. There it is again. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, we're probably familiar with those verses. We're being told to humble ourselves. We're being told to clothe ourselves with humility. But how does this actually functionally play out? What is the way we do this? It's the next phrase that Peter says. He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is exactly what Ezra's doing. He's casting his anxieties onto the Lord by humbling himself before him and fasting and praying and seeking for his, his care and concern. In the New Testament, we're told to do exactly the same thing. How do we humble ourselves? We cast our cares or our anxieties, depending on your translation, on Jesus because he cares for us. Casting our cares is what humility looks like in practice. And here's the reality that we've got to reckon with is that if we're unwilling to bring our anxieties to the Lord Jesus, we are actually living out of a form of pride and it's never going to lead to the life we actually want. We, we need to recognize that our only journey to safety eternally and otherwise is in the arms of Christ. And if we're not pursuing him and casting all of our cares on him, we are actually living functionally as prideful people. And pride leads to being humbled by God, not in a positive way though. And so we have one of two options. We either humble ourselves to be exalted or we exalt ourselves to be humbled. And, and the way in which we walk out humility is by going to God and saying, I can't do this. I don't have the, I don't have the resources in myself to do this. Help me. That's functionally what humility looks like. It's willingness to admit we're not what we should be. We see Ezra doing it. We see him leading out in that. All right, let's go to one more. Verse 24 through 36. We're not going to look at all of this um, just for the sake of time here. The first um, 10 verses of this section, uh, 24 to 34, basically is just giving us a list of the things that they're bringing with them. Uh, so they bring a lot of things with them. Lots of money, silver and gold. It says that uh, in verse 25, it says, I weighed out all uh, to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offerings for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there presented, uh, present had offered. So the king and all of his people, they start to give a bunch of money to this to help the Israelites establish their, their home. And Ezra weighs it all out, and he says, he says they, there was 650 talents of silver. A talent was 75 pounds. 
So you do the basic math and you're talking about almost 50,000 pounds of silver. That's insane. That's like 25 tons that they had to drag with them to, I mean, I'm like, I would have been like, thanks, but no thanks. Like, I don't need this, this, but they, they did apparently. And they had 200 uh, talents of vessels and uh, all, and tons of gold. I mean, they had literally 7,500 pounds of gold. I mean, a lot of stuff they're dragging with them. Okay. But that's what that passage, that those 10 verses tell us. The, the key verses I want to look at, though, is 35 through 36. The last two, chat, two verses. So at that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the, to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all of Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and a sin offering 12 male goats. All of this was, burnt, was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps, which were some sort of an official from Persia, and to the governors of the province beyond the river. And they aided the people and the house of God. So here's what happens. As the people do return to the land, they, they take this journey. God does protect them. God does come through. They make the four-month journey across the desert without incident, as far as we can see. And they arrive in Israel. And what do they do? What is the, what is the first thing they do? Well, they make offerings to the Lord. They bring their sacrifices to him. Why? Why not try to unload all of this stuff? Why not get settled in? Why? Well, here's the thing. This, this whole, again, we, we talked about this back in, I think it was chapter six as well. So you have these moments where they, they make these massive amounts of offerings and sacrifices. But what that is for us as we read it through the lens of the New Testament is that these are shadows for how they could receive acceptance. That's what the sacrifices were for. There's this, there's this blockage because of sin between us and God. There has to be something that, that deals with that, that block. There has to be something that gets us back to him. And in the Old Testament times, that was the sacrificial system. That was putting these animals, these helpless animals, into a place where they were going to be slaughtered so that we didn't have to die for our sins. But of course, all of this finds its fulfillment in Christ. The reason we don't sacrifice animals anymore is because we have a once and for all sacrifice of Christ that gets us to that acceptance that we desperately need. This is the thing that gets us to that that need to be received and loved and embraced. It is because Jesus Christ died for us. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 to 4 tells us this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is no divide. There is no relational disunity. There is nothing that keeps us from him if we're in Christ Jesus. Why is that? Well, Romans 8 continues to tell us, because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Well, how did it do that? Because God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
God has done what the law could not do. What was that? By sending his own son into the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So we're not condemned. Sin is condemned. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who, were, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. It is through Christ becoming a man, entering into our world, living a sinless life, obeying the law, dying on the cross, that we become non-condemned people. We have a relationship with Jesus because he died to take our sin. And that is the only way that we will truly understand and experience the acceptance our hearts long for. We need to know that we're significant. Well, that is found in the fact that God has brought us by Jesus' death into his family. We need to know that we're secure. That happens as we humble ourselves before the Lord and we pursue him in humility. That, that acceptance that we long for is found in the justifying work of Christ for our sins. What we need to do as we wrestle with these things, as we struggle through the day, day in, day out life and all the fear and all the anxiety and all the struggles and all the things that we encounter is we need to keep pivoting our hearts back to the finished work of Jesus, that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I tell people and myself often, we need to read Romans 8 until we believe Romans 8 because that's, that is the passage that is going to help us. And there's many of them, but that is the, probably the clearest passage that we can point to and go, no, no matter what lie I'm believing right now, no matter what I'm being told, I am not condemned because of Jesus Christ. And I have my full acceptance from him because he's done what I could never do. We need to cast ourselves in humility upon this Jesus and then we will find the things that our hearts most desperately need and long for. We will find this, the significance we want. We will find the security we need. And we will find the acceptance and the love that we are promised. So let me pray. Uh, Jesus, we are uh, grateful for you, for what you've done for us to, to accomplish our salvation by doing what the law weakened by the flesh could not do in that you lived a sinless life and you went to the cross and died in the place of sinners to be condemned for us and to condemn sin in the flesh. Lord, we pray that we would rest in that and find our hope and significance and joy in it. We pray that you would give us your grace as we move forward today, as we enter into a new week uh, with all kinds of things coming at us, would you keep pointing our, our hearts back to you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.